Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford. And welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Daniel Colin Ramos, an associate professor of cell biology at Yale University. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Ramos. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. So, as is usual, can you first tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, and uh, when you think you decided you wanted to become a scientist? So, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. That's where I grew up. I grew up in a small town in the middle of the island called Barranquitas. I divided my time between there and San Juan, where I went to school. And when did I decide to become a scientist? You know, I, I actually think that, and I've said this before in, in, in some talks that I've given on, on science outreach, I think that we're all born scientists. And uh, that doesn't mean that we're all going to become scientists, but there's an awesome book written by this um, child development scientist at Berkeley called The Scientist in the Crib that describes how kids essentially use the scientific method or something similar to the scientific method when they're learning about language and learning about the world around them. So what happened in my case was that I didn't stop asking questions and that was actually something that in part was uh, probably my interest and in part stimulated by my parents. I didn't grow up around any scientist, so there, there are no scientists in my family, so I didn't think of science as a profession per se, but I, I was very curious and my parents supported that and they they bought me my first microscope when I was 10, things like that, and that really that really helped keep the fire alive for me. Do you remember the first thing you looked at in your microscope? Mosquitoes. <laughs> there are plenty of those in Puerto Rico, yeah. So I was actually looking at mosquito larvae. Huh. Probably Aedes aegypti, which is the mosquito that causes dengue fever. And if you have places where there's no running water, like where water is it's just sitting there, the mosquitoes tend to lay their eggs there, and the mosquito larvae look like little tadpoles that swim around. So I will pick them up and I will put them in, in slides and look at them. Cool. So you did your graduate work with Sally Kornbluth at Duke, is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah. And you, uh, you studied a protein called Reaper, uh, which gets its name from its role in the cell death signaling pathway we refer to as apoptosis. When you started working in the lab, what did we know about Reaper and why was it an interesting protein to learn more about? You know, Reaper, Reaper was a fascinating protein to study. At one point, there were so many people working on Reaper that I calculated that it, it's only a 65 amino acid protein. So I calculated there was like a PhD thesis every four amino acids. <laughs> <laughs> so that's essentially how many people were working on it. You know, it's one of the first proteins that was shown to be sufficient to induce apoptosis in a genetic system. It was discovered in Drosophila by Hermann Steller's group. And what Sally's lab had done is that they, they had established a biochemical system to try to understand what were the molecules that were been affected by Reaper in, in the process of inducing programmed cell death or apoptosis. So we use Xenopulsar extracts, and that, that's a beautiful biochemical system where you can reconstitute the, you know, the Xenopus egg is so gigantic and it has all the, well, it has a lot of the cytoplasmic molecules that you'll find in a regular cell. So you can put a lot of these eggs together and centrifuge them at high speeds, and then you can get these extracts that you can think of it like uh, it's just a cytoplasmic fraction. Mm -hmm. Then you can you can add Reaper to it, and we have these biochemical readouts of caspase activation. 
and we could see that Reaper was inducing also in these vertebrate extracts, although Reaper is a drosophila protein. So, so just for, for background on people, what is caspase and why can you use it as a readout of cell death? So caspases are the effectors of programmed cell death. So they're proteases that get activated. They're expressed as cymogens. So they're expressed as inactive forms of the protein. And then what happens is that they, they self-activate through proteolytic activity. And what Reaper does is that it, it, it does a number of things. That's why there were so many people working on it. But one of the things that it can do is that it can induce cytochrome C release from the mitochondria. So the mitochondria, of course, is thought of as an organelle that is very important for producing ATP and energy. But there were these beautiful experiments uh, that, were, that were done around the time when I was a graduate student or shortly before, where they showed that the mitochondria can also release cytochrome C and the release of cytochrome C then causes these, the formation of a complex that they call the apoptosis promoting complex or APAF. And that, that complex that looks, it's, it's a very big complex. It just brings all these cymogens together, all these caspase cymogens together. And although they're very, the activity is very low because there's so many of them, there's gonna be some proteolytic activity. And they're gonna start, once one of them starts getting activated, it's a fit forward loop. And you activate all these caspases that then go on to degrade like the, the DNA, they activate DNases and other things and the cell dies. That's how apoptosis is activated. Okay, so your lab had this, you know, biochemical kind of reduced system where you can put on Reaper and then see the biochemical signature of, of cell death. And then what did you guys do to use that to, to figure out what Reaper was doing? One of the things that I discovered was that Reaper was also inhibiting translation and that that capacity of Reaper to inhibit translation was independent of its role, inducing apoptosis in the mitochondria. That observation at first was puzzling and we thought that maybe it's a reduced system like you were talking about it's a biochemical system so it's prone to artifacts you have to be very careful with your controls but so we did a bunch of controls and and observed that this activity was specific to reaper that we can that we could alter it if we mutated specific amino acids and when we did those experiments we observed that reaper was not just inhibiting translation at large but it's inhibiting translation and then inducing the expression of other genes, probably apoptotic genes. What were people thinking when you entered graduate school and Reaper was discovered? Was there kind of an overall thought that it was going to be a singular pathway? Because what you've now described is that Reaper sort of at least goes out in two directions, and I don't know anything about the field, but maybe even more directions to affect lots of things in parallel. Yeah, it was a very exciting time when I, when I started in grad school. It was very exciting what was going on with apoptosis because some people had done some experiments showing, for example, that the mitochondria played a very important role through the release of cytochrome C, which was very unexpected. And that, that came from biochemical studies. Then Hermann Sterer was doing other genetic experiments showing that, for example, Reaper, Heat, there are other proteins called Heat and Grim were also involved. And there were other groups that were also working on autophagy and what, what's, you know, now we now think of as, as autophagy and the importance of autophagy in program cell death. And the, so the, the thought to answer your question regarding Reaper specifically was that there was a lot of interest in understanding if there was a Reaper-like molecule in humans that could act the same way as Reaper did in Drosophila. Essentially, you put Reaper in Drosophila, it's still used as a reagent to kill cells because you put it in a cell, the cell dies. Mm -hmm. 
people at the time were trying to identify, there were two main currents of research. One of them was trying to identify what Reaper did in the cell, in Drosophila, and we were using heterologous extracts to identify those activities too, and some people were using tissue culture cells. And there was another line of work that was trying to identify Reaper-like proteins in vertebrates. So actually part of my PhD thesis was identifying a group of proteins in viruses that act much like Reaper does. Oh, huh. Because at the end of the, the viral life cycle, it's trying to induce apiatosis to get itself out? You know, there are viruses. Like, one of the things that I learned about viruses in the course of my studies, um, so I, I approached it from a more like molecular biology, biochemistry side, trying to understand apoptosis, and then ended up looking at viruses because of these proteins. And one of the things that I learned talking to virologists is that viruses evolve so quickly that if there's a way in which the, that will be favorable for the virus, the virus is going to figure it out. So in some, for some tissues, the virus wants to kill the cell. And in some circumstances, the virus wants to inhibit apoptosis. Right. And it just depends on the tissue that the, vir the virus is attacking. And it also depends on the stage in which the virus is. Like you were mentioning or suggesting, yes, like if it wants to get out of some cells, for example, that are very refractory to dying, like because the you know, the organism wants to keep those cells alive, then the virus is going to try to find a way of killing these cells so they can get out. Mm -hmm. So you went on to do a postdoc in Kong Shen's lab here at Stanford, where you studied the role of glia in synapse formation in C. elegans. So were you drawn specifically towards studying neuroscience at that time? What happened that drew you towards neuroscience? Yeah, so I, as I was finishing my studies in grad school, I started thinking about just generally what I wanted to do for my postdoc. And I was unusually systematic about the process of finding a postdoc at that time. So I decided I was interested in developmental questions and that I wanted to work on a genetically tractable organism. I saw a lot of advantages to working in Xenopus because of the biochemistry, but it was, you know, genetically intractable because it's a pseudo-tetraploid. So I wanted to work in a genetically tractable organism. And there was a an introductory class offered at Duke University for incoming graduate students in neuroscience, and I decided to audit that class, and I sat through all the classes, and and when they arrived at developmental neurobiology, that just, you know, that just really captured my imagination. I really liked what I was seeing, and I decided I wanted to do developmental neurobiology, and, and I wasn't sure what lab or what model organism to use, so I interviewed in labs that did developmental neurobiology in C. elegans, in Drosophila, and in mice, because I wanted to use a genetically tractable system. And um, it was in conversations with Kong, who was starting at the time, he was just starting his lab at Stanford, and uh, Corey Bargman, who at the time was at UCSF, that I realized that C. elegans allowed me to bridge my cell biological molecular interest with higher order questions of like more systems level questions like how the connectome forms or how does how do the positions of the synapse influence the behavior of the organism. So in uh, 2007 in Kong's lab, you published a paper showing that the connectivity between two interneurons is orchestrated by a pair of glial cells uh, that express a protein called netrin. So previous to this work, netrin was shown to be involved in axon guidance. And so it would seem natural to assume that defects in synapse formation were a result of this function. So what led you to think something else was going on? Actually, I, we didn't think something else was going on. We, <laughs> we thought exactly what you mentioned. So we do this forward genetic screen and we identify some mutants that have 
a problem in the synaptic patterning of the animal. So just just to take a step back, the way that sure. we do our experiments is we we can create transgenic animals that allow us to image a single neurons and the synaptic pattern in those single neurons. And because we have the connectome from C. elegans, we can go back to the connectome and figure out for each of the synapses that we're seeing what this postsynaptic partner is going to be or is supposed to be, and we can label those other postsynaptic partners. So we, it's, it's a great system to do cell biology in the intact nervous system, but in vivo. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I wanted to look at synaptic specificity in the nerve ring of the animal, which is the equivalent of the brain. And I labeled a pair of neurons that they're well understood because they're involved in this behavior called thermotaxis, which is actually a very neat behavior. C. elegans does not have an innate preferred temperature. Instead, it remembers the temperature at which it was last fed. Mm -hmm. So it creates a memory of what we call the cultivation temperature. So when you put it in a temperature gradient without food, it moves to the, to the temperature at which it was last fed. And the neurons that are involved in that, in that behavior are known, and one of the neurons that I decided to label is one of the interneurons that's very important for that behavior. So we're now doing some behavioral analysis, but back then in Kong's lab, the question that I started with was very simple. The pattern of the synapses looks very stereotyped from animal to animal. So it looks very similar. So we could do a forward genetic screen and just find mutants in which the pattern was disrupted. And we found a mutant and we convinced ourselves because of the way that we did this screen without knowing the identity of the mutant, we convinced ourselves that this was a synaptic problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we couldn't detect any axon guidance problems or cell migration problems. So once we cloned the mutant, once we identified the genetic lesion and it turned out to be a genetic lesion, in an axon guidance molecule, then we couldn't talk ourselves out of thinking about the synaptic pattern because we had already convinced ourselves experimentally that there were no detectable problems with guidance. Now you can always argue, well, maybe there are fine problems with guidance, and we thought about that possibility. But you can do in cell autonomous experiments. So cell autonomous experiments, essentially what you do is you take the animal, which is mutant for this receptor in every single cell, and then you put a well-typed copy of the receptor just in the cell that you're inspecting or the cell that has the phenotype. So now you have a mutant, a mutant version of the receptor everywhere, but in one cell. And, you're uh, look, and in this case, you mean the postsynaptic cell or the presynaptic cell? Well, in this case, it's the presynaptic cell, uh-huh. where we saw a problem with the distribution of presynaptic specializations. And when we looked at the distribution of the presynaptic specializations, when we rescued cell autonomously, we saw that it, it actually rescued. So that meant that that receptor was acting in that cell, not in other cells, for the distribution of presynaptic specializations. That's important because although the other tissues do not have the receptor and could be affected, and we're not, we're not imaging them because we're imaging one cell specifically in the, in the organism, one neuron specifically, that's the power of the system that we have, you can argue that the rest of the circuits are affected, but it, it doesn't matter because we can rescue the presynaptic pattern just by putting a wild-type copy of the receptor in that in that presynaptic cell. Okay, so just, just to help us talk about this, the, what is the name of this receptor that you discovered? It's the netrin receptor. It's ONC40. It's called ONC40-DCC. Okay, so, so you've kind of established that ONC40 in this single neuron is necessary to make the pattern of synapses be correct. So how did you come to discover that the signaling molecule, uh, which I believe is called netrin, is actually coming from the glial cells as opposed to uh, other neurons? Right. You know, so this was a surprising discovery. So it, we have this receptor normally involved in guidance. 
affecting a new found role in presynaptic assembly. And the question was, what is this receptor talking to? And the molecule that the receptor is talking to is known for guidance. It's known. It's natrium. Mm -hmm. And so then we ask, where is natrium being expressed? And it turns out that at the time when these synapses are forming, the only cell that is actually expressing natrium is a glia cell. That's, if you look at the connectome, is in contact with the neuron where the synapses are forming. So it's in the right place at the right time expressing the right molecule. So then we did a series of experiments to show that the glia cell was actually, what, what's essentially happening, to, to recap that story, that you have a presynaptic cell and a postsynaptic cell. And those two cells are listening to the glia cell. And the glia cell is marking a position, it's marking a coordinate. And those two cells are coming together, or connecting to each other, specifically at the glia-specified coordinate, because the glia cell is producing natrium. Now, the part of the story that was confusing to us at the time, we, the reason that we thought that the natrium receptor was maybe the, the, maybe the phenotype that we were seeing presynaptically was because the natrium receptor was affecting guidance in some tissue, was that the postsynaptic cell also expresses the natrium receptor. The natrium receptor is required in that postsynaptic cell for guidance, but it's acting cell autonomously in the postsynaptic cell. So you can get rid of the postsynaptic cell and the presynaptic cell looks fine. The presynaptic specializations, where the presynaptic cell positions its presynaptic specializations, depends not on the postsynaptic cell, but on the glia. At the same time, where the postsynaptic cell goes to, where it, where it sends its dendrite, depends not on the presynaptic cell, but on the glia. The analogy that I like to make is, is you walk into a lecture hall and you see all these people listening to a speaker, and maybe the most parsimonious hypothesis, if you walk there like that and you don't understand how lectures work, is that this speaker communicated individually with each one of the people that are there mm -hmm. to tell them that, that they're coming to give a lecture. But we all know that's not how it works. The way that it works is that there's an, a third party, an organizer, yeah. a host, that's telling everywhere when and where to meet. That, in this case, is the glia. Maybe I've been traveling too much lately, but it reminds me of uh, if you just looked at an airport, you might think that uh, you know the, the gate machinery and the planes sort of know where to meet, but, but really it's the little guys on the ground. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. I think the, the most important part for the people that are listening to the explanation is that you know we think about glia as these passive tissues that are just providing trophic support or structural support to the nervous system, but here the glia is playing a very active role in orchestrating the connectivity between the pre- and the postsynaptic cell. Now, people ask me, if you get rid of the postsynaptic cell and you have presynaptic specializations in the right place, are they connected onto? And, and we don't know. We're, we're defining this question so biologically. So, of course, you don't have a synapse because you don't have a postsynaptic cell. You only have the glia and the presynaptic cell there. But the important point is that cell biologically, the the presynaptic cell knows where to position its presynaptic specializations by listening to instructions of a glia cell that's marking where ultimately the pre- and the postsynaptic cell are going to meet. I think a lot of mammalian people might be thinking about this kind of question and, and think, well, what about activity? I mean, I thought that these kinds of developmental wiring also involved activity. And so it may be that still the activity of the neuron needs to somehow stimulate the glia and the glia needs to talk back. And it's a kind of a two-way conversation rather than just a one-way conversation. Is there evidence for or against this kind of idea? So far, our evidence suggests that the position of these synapses is genetically mediated through a developmental program driven by the position of the glia. 
And when we alter, we can alter activity in C. elegans also genetically by getting rid of like snares and things like that, and or snare regulating proteins. And when we do that, the positions of these synapses look normal. We cannot detect any problems with the positions of these synapses. Now, these are again cell biological readouts. Sure. So we cannot make any statements. I mean, of course, activity is very important, but in terms of cell bi biologically, in terms of the position of, of these synapses when they're first established during development, the evidence suggests that these are developmental programs that are genetically encoded. It's a genetic uh, developmental program. I think that's the most parsimonious model based on our data. That's not to say that activity doesn't play a role sure, in, sure. in these or other circuits. Yeah. So you started your own lab in 2008, where you've continued to work on the role of Netrin and its receptor in the formation and function of uh, synapses and C. elegans. And in 2013, you published a paper showing that in addition to driving the formation of junctional synapses, that is a synapse that has both a presynaptic and postsynaptic neuronal partner, Netrin DCC also drives the targeting of non-junctional release sites. So First, could you elaborate on some of the differences between junctional and non-junctional modes of neuronal communication, and then talk about how Netrin and DCC play a role in both? Very briefly, junctional synapses are synapses where you have a presynaptic cell and a postsynaptic cell in very close opposition, like they're, they're contacting each other almost. You have the synaptic cleft in between, but they're, in, they're very close to each other. And non-junctional synapses are the synapses that Physiologists might think of more in terms of like volume transmission, for example, where you have a release site that's very similar to a presynaptic release site, but instead of having a postsynaptic cell in direct contact or very close to the presynaptic release site, you have a number of cells that are listening to that release site. So again, making an analogy is the difference between having a conversation between two people and having a lecture. Yeah. So that is cell biologically the main difference. For both of those synapses, you need to specify where they're going to be positioned. So although you have volume transmission, this thing is not just talking to, these this release sites are known not to talk to, to everybody. They're actually formed onto specific target areas and they have their audience, so to speak, which are cells that are receiving the information or responding to the information. In these non-junctional modes, are there any postsynaptic specializations, like in, in terms of even just receptor localization? I mean, you don't see the kind of distinct postsynaptic density or things that you would see structurally. Just to give an example, some of these non-junctional volume transmission synapses are serotonergic neuromodulatory synapses. Mm -hmm. And sure. then you have those receptors, yes, in, in cells that are nearby, but they're listening to the, they're, they're in multiple synapses and they're listening to one or a few release sites. So you don't have them in direct opposition to each other. But, you know, serotonergic neurons, both in our brains and also if you look at simpler invertebrates like C. elegans in their nervous system, they control a wide variety of behaviors, but they control it very specifically. And they actually target to specific regions of the nervous system. So we were interested in understanding how that targeting happened. In C. elegans, that targeting is not guidance because what we see for, for example, the serotonergic neuron that we studied, it completes its guidance. And it, it, so it sends out this, this axon and that the axon is essentially naked. It's devoid of arbors or presynaptic release sites for most of the development of the animal. And then it hits a specific developmental stage where all of a sudden the axon arborizes and forms all these release sites. And we were interested in that mechanism of how does the axon know when and where to form these release sites. And it turns out that there that these release sites are formed right on top of the brain of the animal. And 
they're mediated through the netrin mechanism, which is very similar to the mechanism that we uncovered for the glia, only that in this case, the serotonergic neuron that's forming these release sites is listening not to a glia cell, but to guidepost neurons. So guidepost neurons are conceptually doing similar things to the glia cell in that they are marking positions. So they're marking where these release sites are supposed to form. Yeah. And so the neuron can target very specific regions. So in C. elegans, a serotonergic neuron, if one of its uh, release sites is non-junctional, are all serotonergic release sites non-junctional? That's a great question. So the answer is that we don't know. So we do know that in this particular neuron that we were looking at, uh, so again, the, the advantage of our studies is that we can look at specific cells in the context of the intact nervous system. The disadvantage is that we're looking at specific cells in the context of the intact nervous system, so we don't know what's going on with the other cells. But in this particular cell, the extrasynaptic or the non-junctional synapses are serotonergic. It does form junctional synapses, which we do not know if they're serotonergic or glutamatergic, uh, which is another interesting question. Right. Uh, we're examining that. Yeah, because you might immediately think if this neuron can both make a junctional and non-junctional, and you've identified a signal that says make a synapse here, well, the question then arises, well, what's the signal that says make a junctional versus make a non-junctional synapse? Absolutely. So you have that question, and then you also have the question of this, this particular neuron is thought to make two neurotransmitters. So you have the question of are both neurotransmitters going to both the junctional or non-junctional synapse, or are they going to different synapses? And if they're going to different synapses, then you, know, you can think of all sorts of interesting pathways that will be needed to specify the specificity of those synapses in a single neuron. Yeah. So as you mentioned before, you're originally from Puerto Rico, and in 2006, you created an online community called Ciencia Puerto Rico, which is designed to improve communication and scientific discussion between members of an otherwise disparate group and to provide a platform for increasing the visibility of underrepresented voices in science. Could you talk a little bit about why you created this site and what you've been able to accomplish with it so far? So when I was growing up in Puerto Rico, I was lucky that my parents encouraged me to continue in science and to pursue a career in science, but I didn't know any scientists. So my windows into science were scientists that wrote op-eds like Carl Sagan or Isaac Asimov, and they were poorly translated into Spanish, and my dad would cut them out and bring them home, and that those were my windows into science. And I often wondered why scientists didn't write more for, for the general public. So when I was training as a scientist, actually at Stanford with Kong Shen, when, while I was a postdoc, I started I became interested in giving back. Like I felt like I understood the importance of science. And I have said before, and I, I strongly believe that scientific literacy is for the 21st century, what knowing what to read and write was for the 20th century. I think that we have, you know, we're living through a scientific revolution right now. It's a, it's a very special time in human history, but science education or access to science hasn't caught up with that fact. And um, I, you know, I come from a community that does resource limited, that where a lot of people like me when I was growing up, they don't have access to scientific information or they understand why science is important. So I wanted to do something about that. And I started writing articles for newspapers in Puerto Rico, just explaining simple things. Like I explained why I worked on C. elegans and how C. elegans was useful or how yeast had contributed fundamental discoveries in cell cycle and how that actually was very important for cancer biology, for example. But then I quickly realized that I just couldn't do it on my own. So it was, it was too much work. So 
I started meeting other scientists at conferences that were from Puerto Rico or were interested in Puerto Rico, were interested in these topics and just wanted to help. They just wanted to, like what you guys are doing, they just wanted to uh, disseminate scientific information. And I thought, well, how can we harness that enthusiasm? You know, a, a natural way for that scientists usually think about is a conference, but that takes a lot of effort too. So I thought, well, can we use cost-effective way maybe through social networking tools? This is like around the time that Facebook was starting to, like, can we use social networking tools to bring scientists together? So I teamed up with a person that at the time was an undergrad at Stanford, David Craig, was working in Kong's lab. And he had created this database for C. elegans, like essentially a way of us knowing where the C. elegans strains were stored in the minus 80. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that database and I thought, you know, this is exactly what I need. Like instead of the C. elegans information, people can just put their scientific interest. And I convinced him to just adapt that. It didn't take a lot of convincing. This, this kid had a lot of energy. And he, he essentially adapted it. And when we launched it, I was expecting maybe, I didn't know many Puerto Rican scientists. So I was expecting maybe 40 or 50 people to register. And the network today has over, I think it has close to 7,000 registered scientists and educators around the world, 30, 40 different countries. I mean, that surprised me. It has been a wonderful experience to do that. Could you recall a particular story that you know has arisen from this community that has touched you in a particular way? Oh, absolutely. What happens is that science is concentrated in a few institutes or places around the world. So most scientists are actually geographically you know, my work in the neurons have to do with architecture, and this topic also has to do with like spatial things. Like most scientists are grouped in particular institutions, and that's how we exchange information. And if you're not in those institutions, you're not in the mainstream of science information. So, what we started doing was by creating this network, we brought together a geographically dispersed community of people that had common interests. What then emerged was I could not have predicted, but it has essentially changed the scientific dialogue in Puerto Rico and in Latin America. Like, I'll give you two or three stories. The scientists got together, they realized that the examples that were being used in textbooks in Puerto Rico had very little to do with the reality that kids encountered in the environment in Puerto Rico. So, for example, for seed dispersal, one of the examples that are used in textbooks in Puerto Rico are maple trees, which is a beautiful example of seed dispersal. If, if you grow up where maple trees grow up, but or, or normally grow, but in Puerto Rico there are no maple trees. So kids couldn't relate to that example. So they, the scientists decided to write essays and, and put the essays together in a book that contextualize scientific concepts to the reality of Puerto Rico. There are like 35 essays in that book and they're all excellent. But one of my favorite ones explains how Puerto Rico was born in the Pacific. And the way that they explain that is because there's this region of Puerto Rico that everyone knows because it's very picturesque. And that area of Puerto Rico is the oldest part of Puerto Rico and it has this red sediment that actually corresponds to fossilized microorganisms that only exist in the Pacific. So, so this geologist explains through that example tectonic plate movement and how science works to essentially elucidate things that you will not have been able to guess otherwise because of our short lifespan on Earth. So that's one example. And then Another example is that this network, the AAAS, for example, American Association for the Advancement of Science, contacted us interested in replicating this network for scientists in Haiti. Mm. The reason being that most of these Haitian scientists are in the Haitian diaspora. They're not in, in Haiti doing research. 
But if they want to contribute back to Haiti, or, or you don't have to be Haitian, any scientist that would want to contribute back to Haiti's education or anything like that could do it if there, if there was a network that existed similar to this type of network. You know, there are a number of places around the world that are trying to replicate this type of models. I mean, now there's an executive director that does this full-time. I don't do this full-time anymore, but it was something that got started because of my interest to just connect back to, actually, frankly, to connect back to who I was when I was a child growing up in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I really like this story of a of a minus eighty database uh, translating into that's new right. Textbooks, like, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So finally, could you just give us a preview of what you plan to talk about when you come to Stanford? Sure. We talked a lot about this work that I did on CLIA orchestrating circuit assembly during development. And, you know, that, that work fell out of a forward genetic screen. So, I mean, the role of glia in nervous system development and maintenance is not a new topic in Stanford. You guys have some towering figures there, like Ben Bars, that have uh, looked at these questions for some time. But, you know, we're not as smart as Ben, so we didn't actually choose to look at glia. We were doing forward genetic screens and ended up, you know, discovering a glia role during development. So we were doing, in my lab recently, a, a different forward genetic screen looking at the maintenance of synaptic positions during growth. So the reality of it is that these circuits, many of these circuits develop early in embryogenesis and then they're maintained as the animal continues to grow. So how is it that synaptic positions are maintained? And I'm not talking about, you know, when people think of synaptic maintenance, they think about synapses are there and then synapses break down. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the synaptic position. Like how, how is it that that architecture is maintained as the animals are getting bigger? And if the animal got bigger proportionally, that would be a trivial question. But animals don't get bigger proportionally. That's a topic that has long fascinated biologists and is called allometry. Uh, so we would become interested in this question of synaptic allometry and we did a forward genetic screen and what would you know, we ended up finding a role for glia in maintaining uh, synaptic positions as the animal grew. And it was, again, it was completely unexpected. It, it depends on other molecular mechanisms different from natrine, so they're not the same molecules that are, the same molecules that are involved in the establishment of the circuit are not involved in the maintenance of synaptic positions during growth, which was a surprising aspect to us. And that, that's the topic that I'm gonna be talking about. I'm gonna be talking about synaptic allometry, so how synaptic positions are maintained as the animals grow, mm. and the role of glia in maintaining synaptic allometry. Can I ask you a sort of random question? Do, do synapse size also change as, uh, as the animal grows? Like I would imagine bigger muscle maybe needs more neurotransmitter or, or something, but maybe not, I don't know. No, they do. So the synapse, the synapse size does change. What we did for these allometry studies is that we quantitated the ratio of the synaptic distribution with the size of the cell. So if you do that, that ratio stays fairly constant as the animal continues to grow. So the size is growing, but so is the cell. So everything is growing pretty proportionally. But the, synap but the synaptic position is actually maintained. The maintenance of that position is important because that position, for example, like if you look at the presynaptic position, that position presynaptically is what's gonna direct the specific connectivity to the postsynaptic partner. So if you move where those synapses are, or if they're not maintained properly, then all the resources that you invested in specifying the connectivity during the embryo goes to hell because yeah. you're, you're not keeping it in the right place. Yeah. And that, that, that we thought was gonna be a dependent again on the postsynaptic, that was our bias. It was gonna be dependent on, again, the postsynaptic partner, but it's actually not, it's, it's primarily mediated through this glia cell.
Hmm, great. Well, I look forward to hearing that. So in closing, we have a series of uh, more rapid-fire questions. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself and yourself specifically as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? You know, I got some great advice from mentors when I was starting my career. I think I will pass on maybe two pieces of great advice that I got when I was starting. One of them is the importance of the model system that you're using to answer the question. I think you can, will only make as much progress as your model system allows you to make. And each system has its strengths and its weaknesses. So it's important to know what those are and to f either focus the question around the strength of the model system or choose a model system that allows you to get to the question that you're interested on. So that's a piece of advice that helped me a lot during my career. And the second one is that I think people in science emphasize the importance of working hard. And I think working hard is necessary, but it's not sufficient for success in science. And I, one of the reasons is because of the way that we think about working hard. We think that, that working hard means being at the bench all the time, by petting or doing experiments or passing worms or flies or mating mice. And I, you know, one of my earlier mentors emphasized the importance of also taking time away from the bench and thinking thinking about the interpretation of the experiment, thinking about the design of the experiment. And sometimes that needs to happen away from the bench because there are too many distractions at the bench. So busy work at the bench, bench work is very necessary, but there's such a thing as busy work at the bench. Mm -hmm. And it's important to take time away and, and, you know, that experiment that did not work, quote unquote, what does that mean? Like if it didn't work, it could be the most important discovery in your career, like I bet that, for example, like Alexander Fleming wasn't the first person whose plates got contaminated with penicillin, right? <laughs> right, right. So he was so, just the first but, one who, who cared to notice, or or cared to try to purify the penicillin, or you know. So it's thinking is is a time saver. Yeah. So in 2013, you joined the editorial board for the Journal of Cell Biology. Uh, do you have some experience on the board that you, or have you learned anything about the world of science publishing that most grad students or junior researchers uh, might not be aware of? One of the things that surprised me as a graduate student when I was writing my first papers was that there are two types of chronologies. One of them is the chronology of the how the discovery happened, and another one was the chronology of how the biological process happens. And you have to make a decision of which chronology you're going to relate. And the chronology that feels most honest to a starting graduate student, at, the, at least it did to me, was the chronology of how the experiments happen. Because it felt very dishonest to say, and then we did this, when in reality we, that's not the chronology that had taken place when we did the, the rollout of the experiments. But the reality of it is that unless you're a famous scientist, no one really, or you're doing an interview like this, <laughs> no one really cares. <laughs> about the chronology of how the experiments happen. They want to know how the biological process happens. So my advice or what I have seen also as an editor is that you can take five figures and give it to five different scientists and they might end up framing it in five different ways. So it's important, I think, as a graduate student to recognize that the process is not as linear as it's written out to be in the papers. Yeah. And that it does take one putting on a different hat when one is going to go and write a paper and looking at the figures and again thinking, thinking about what, what does this mean, how is this important and how am I going to weave this story in a way that it integrates into what we understand or don't understand about the field that I'm working on. Yeah. So thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Ramos. Thank you. This is the last NeuroTalk of the academic year and we will return at the end of September. We'll continue to produce our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, which airs on KZSU 90.1 FM every Wednesday at 1 p.m. We also post the show to our website, NeuriteWest, 
org the Monday after the show airs. Finally, as I will be leaving to join Stephen at the Allen Institute next year, this is my final show as the host of Neurotalk. It's been a real privilege and incredibly interesting. Uh, thanks very much to Erica and Mark for all their help putting the show together, and to all the guests for taking the time to speak with us, and to you for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalena, Ada Yee, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neurightwest.org. <laughs>